Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Good morning again, everyone. Today we'll once again be studying Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And what we'll come to see in this morning's text is that Paul is continuing to teach the Philippians by means of examples. All the way back in verse 27 of chapter 1, we see Paul saying, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or you remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this is great advice that we have here from Paul, but how is one to go about conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? How are we to stand firm in one spirit? What must we do to come together with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel? Well, Paul has been answering these very questions throughout all of chapters 2 and 3. And he's concluding his thoughts on this matter in this morning's text. We have seen that Paul's method to help bring about this result in the Philippians did not include a seminar with a five-step program on how to become a church that stands firm. No, rather he placed in front of them example after example so that they might observe the pattern in these examples and follow in their footsteps. Chapter 2 provides us with all positive examples. Paul starts with Jesus, then he moves on to himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And as we turn the page to chapter 3, Paul was still teaching by means of examples, but he starts to use negative ones rather than positive. He warns the Philippians to beware of the Jews who put all of their confidence in the flesh. And then he provides his own life as an example of what confidence in the flesh will gain them. And we saw our answer a few weeks ago. What it will gain is loss. He has been revealing to us two types of patterns. And as we will see this morning, they each lead to contrasting outcomes. In 1859, renowned author Charles Dickens wrote his famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And he begins it with one of the most iconic literary introductions. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And as Charles Dickens wrote his novel, he looked back to the events of the French Revolution in 1775 and used that story to tell of the contrasts and comparisons between the cities of London and Paris. And as we open up to our text this morning in Philippians chapter 3, 
what we're going to see is the same thing. Though the people living throughout the Roman colony of Philippi may have looked the same and dressed the same as those belonging to the Philippian church, that is where all comparisons ended. For everything else about these two groups now lay in contrast. They each followed a different pattern. They each walked in a different manner. And the outcome of their lives would reveal just how stark this contrast really was. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 through verse 1 of chapter 4. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So reads the word of the living God. Last week we ended in verse 14, where we saw Paul continuing his race, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is continuing to strive and reach forward to what lies ahead because he has not already obtained it. We read that in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. And once again in verse 15, we come across this same word, perfect. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And after reading this, we may ask, what are we missing here, Paul? Are you not perfect, or are you perfect? Because I don't think you can be both. And while the same Greek word is used here both times, Paul's intention is to use them in two slightly different ways. We saw last week that he was not perfect in the sense that he had not yet come to gain, be found in, or know Christ in the fullest or most complete sense. What he was lacking was completeness. He then uses the same word a second time, not meaning to employ a sense of completeness, but rather maturity. And the English Standard Version helps us to see this. Let those who are mature think this way. And what we're seeing here is that Paul understands that the longer one is walking down the path that God has laid in front of them, and is committed to doing things the Lord's way, that they will leave behind infancy and move into adulthood. 1 Corinthians 14.20 conveys this same message. 1 Corinthians 
14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. As we know, as children of God, we're to feed on God's word. And as we do so, we'll move past milk, which is necessary for a time, and move on to more solid food, which will help us to grow and mature in our faith. And what we're seeing in these verses is that Paul is confident that as his brothers and sisters in Philippi commit themselves to doing so, that the clear revelation from God will be impressed on their minds and that they will adopt the same attitude that Paul has come to possess for himself. He's so confident that God's word will reveal this to them. He says, even if right now you think differently, if you keep on walking down God's path, God will reveal to you the truth. He urges them to keep on moving forward, keep on making progress, and trust that God's spirit and God's word will lead the way. We see in verse 15 that Paul exhorts the Philippian church to keep on moving forward, and in verse 16 he encourages them to make sure that they're not going backwards. He says, God will keep on revealing those things to you as you continue to walk towards him, but make sure that you're living up to what you have already attained. The wording Paul uses here has in mind marching and military step. They are to keep rank, walk in an orderly manner, and not turn around and lose ground that they have already arrived at. Up until this point in Paul's letter, he has been exposing the Philippians to multiple examples. And these examples reveal two types of patterns to follow after. And now that the stage has fully been set, now that all of the characters have been introduced, all that is left to do is to divide those standing on the stage into two groups so that the full contrast between them might become even more visible. Paul sends the brethren to the right, and the enemies of the cross of Christ to the left until there is no one left standing in the middle. He knows that there are only two groups. You are either for God or you are against him. You are a child of God or you are a child of the devil. You are light or you are darkness. You are the wheat or you are the chaff. You are either among the sheep or among the goats. And as we see in this morning's text, You're either grouped amongst the brethren or amongst the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, you may look the same and you may have started off on the same road, but if you truly have been seized by Christ, then you're no longer on the same path. You're no longer walking in the same direction and nothing in your life is going to look the same as it used to. All the inward comparisons that you once had with those outside the faith will begin to fade away until the only similarity left, for right now at least, is our outward body of flesh. This is the only thing that should remain a comparison. Everything else becomes a contrast. And Paul divides all the characters that he's introduced into two groups and then reveals four 
vivid contrast between them. In verse 17, he urges the brethren to imitate his example and to keep their eyes on those who walk in the same manner. In essence, what Paul is saying here is, hey, Philippians, do you remember the perfect, humble example of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Walk as he walked. Do you remember how I showed you what it looks like to rejoice in suffering? Walk as I walk. Do you remember Timothy selflessly seeking the interests of Christ? Walk as he walks. And do you remember your own brother, Epaphroditus, who was willing to risk it all? Walk as he walks. Follow these examples, observe how they have patterned their lives, and walk in that direction. Verse 18. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. With bitter tears, Paul reminds the Philippians that they are enemies of the cross and that they're headed in the wrong direction. And the word used in the text to describe Paul's weeping literally means to sob or wail aloud. And Paul does so because he knows that those that are on this path are many and he knows where the path will lead to. With tears streaming down his face, Paul dips his pen into the ink and writes the next words that are laid on his heart by the Holy Spirit. Hotelos Apolia, whose end is destruction. The outcome of their lives will be ruin, loss, damnation, destruction. This is what lays in wait for the enemies of the cross of Christ at the end of their road. And it's not just a temporary one-time destruction that he is referring to here. He's not speaking of the heresy called annihilationism. No, the destruction that they will face won't be for just a moment, but for all eternity. And make no mistakes, church, this is the clear, consistent teaching of Scripture. But sadly, many throughout history, and even still today, have worked hard to erase this concept from the Bible. Yet, no matter how hard they try, they'll never be able to erase it from the Bible because it's clearly taught throughout the entire thing. It was a belief of the Jewish people in the Old Testament that there would be a place of eternal punishment for those who oppose God. And when Jesus came down to earth in the flesh, we don't see him trying to teach or correct the Jews on this doctrine because they had somehow fallen into error. Rather, we see Jesus warning them to trust him for the forgiveness of their sins because if they remain in their sin, hell is where they'll be headed. And it is from the mouth of Jesus, the one who is to judge the living and the dead, that we see the most warnings of hell. And we see this from him because he undoubtedly knows that hell is a real place. He says it is a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. A place of eternal fire, Matthew 25, 41. Eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 46. He assures his audience that hell is a real place 
It's worse than anything we could ever imagine, and it will be eternal. And anyone who attempts to look to the Bible and see what it says about hell cannot erase it, but still many attempt to soften it. They say, how can there be a fire that burns forever and does not consume? How can there be an eternal flame in a place of outer darkness? These realities don't make any sense here on our earth, so they must not be true of hell. And they jump to the conclusion that these descriptions must be merely symbolism. And somehow they're able to take comfort in thinking that these descriptions might act as symbols. But as David Platt says in his book, Something Needs to Change, the purpose of a symbol is to express a reality greater than what can be expressed in words. So it should bring no solace to think that the Bible's description of hell might be symbolic. And Matthew Henry adds to this thought by saying, nothing is more painful and terrible to the body than to be tormented with fire. By this, therefore, the miseries and agonies of damned souls are represented. And just as heaven will be greater than anything we could ever imagine, so too will hell be worse than anything we could ever imagine. God will strip away all of his common graces that he's given to the inhabitants of this world. There will no longer be anything good. There'll be no laughter, no joy, no friendship, no love. Everything that God has given will be stripped away in hell. And then add to that the wrath of the living God being poured out upon the heads of those who have opposed him and sinned against him. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9 spells this out for us very clearly. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, we'll read 6 through six through 9. <clears throat> for after all, it is only for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And this is what awaits the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end will be destruction. Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. And commentator J.A. Moiter does well to capture the meaning of behind Paul's words here. He says, these people worship themselves. Their God is their belly. They recognize no need and no authority outside personal satisfaction. Their appetites dictate their lives. And Paul also uses the same word in Romans chapter 16. Romans sixteen seventeen through 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances 
contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Paul tells the Philippians to look at the direction one is walking and the way in which they are patterning their lives, and that will reveal who they truly are. And those that are enemies of the cross of Christ are not looking to and declaring Yahweh as their God, but rather themselves. And when we look around today, is this not what we see all around us as well? Each and every person without God in their lives, that would include us in the past, setting up idols, and the biggest one standing front and center is the God of self. Everyone's looking out for number one and acting as if the world really does revolve around them. And left to our own devices, this is what will happen. We'll end up only living for ourselves, worshiping ourselves, and setting ourselves upon the throne as if we were God. And all those that do so are seen in the eyes of God as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're hateful towards God. They're adversaries against him. Too often we want to view the enemies of the cross as only those who are going into churches and shooting them up or persecuting Christians. And while these people are undoubtedly enemies of the cross, so too are all those who are opposed to God. Romans chapter 8 lays this out. Plain as day. Romans 8, 6 through 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, it is at enmity with God. Why? For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. And just as the carnal man will lift himself up upon the throne and worship the God of self, so too will he find all his glory within himself and his own deeds. And to understand Paul's point here, we need look no further than to ourselves. For what is it that we found our glory in before we came to know Christ? Was it not in ourselves and our own achievements? The intellectual glories in his own intellect. The beautiful woman glories in her own beauty. The strong man glories in his strength. The clever child glories in his own cleverness. And you all know yourselves better than I do. So whatever your thing would be, fill in the blank. The point is that on our own, we delight in our own achievements and continue climbing the ladder of pride higher and higher, one rung after another. But yet, what is it that we're told in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 through 19? Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 
It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And the prideful would do well to learn a lesson from Scripture from the nation of Edom. For we can look back in Scripture and see what it was that this people's arrogance, arrogant hearts had earned them. Jeremiah forty nine sixteen. As for you, the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. And Edom's pride led to their destruction and their everlasting shame, which we can see in verse 17. Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds. And the same is still true today. All those who glory in themselves, in their pride, in their sin, and in the things that ought to be shameful, will find out that while they might be able to glory in it for the moment, that it will lead to their own everlasting shame. And Paul is begging the Philippian church not to pattern their lives after the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. And we saw last week what it was that Paul had his eyes fixed upon, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His gaze was set upon the heavens, for that is where his Savior awaited him. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 reminds us of this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And the enemies of the cross of Christ do not have their eyes set towards heavenly things, but rather earthly things. Their gaze is fixed on the things that are below. And sadly, they don't realize that as they lower their eyes, so too they lower the bar on the level of satisfaction that they may hope to find in this life. The things down here will satisfy them enough. So determining that is their lot and that is their portion, they strive to possess as many of these lesser things as they can. These are the same type of people that David has in mind in Psalm 17. We can see this in his prayer. Psalm 17, verses 13 through 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord. From men of the world, whose portion is in this life, in whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And these are the things that characterize 
the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end will be destruction. Their God is their appetites. Their glory is in their shame. And they have their minds set on earthly things. Paul has set the stage. He has introduced all of the characters and divided them into two groups. We have observed which manner the enemies of the cross of Christ walk. But what of the second group? What will happen to the brethren that are waiting on the other side of the stage? What will be their end? Who is their God? What is it that they glory in? And what is it that they have their minds set upon? Well, we've already seen the answers to these questions in the preceding lines of Paul's letter. But still, he gives us enough to recap our answers in verses 20 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject subject all things to himself. For the enemies of the cross of Christ... Their end will be destruction and eternal death. But for all those that are in Christ, our end will be eternal life with a new resurrected body. As we see in our text, Jesus our Savior will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. For the enemies of the cross of Christ, their God is their own appetites. They have made themselves out to be God. But for all those who are in Christ... Our God is the one true God. His name is Yahweh, and he came down to earth in the flesh so that his own might see and know him. Unlike the enemies of the cross of Christ, our glory, our doxa, is not in our shame, but rather it is in the one who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his doxa. We glory not in our shame, but in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And unlike the enemies of the cross of Christ who set their minds on earthly things, our minds are set on heavenly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. That is our homeland. We look to it and eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what awaits those who walk according to the pattern laid out for us in Philippians. Just as our Savior Jesus Christ exemplified what it looks like to have humility of mind, so too we must have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. For as we look to him, the ultimate pattern, we see that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus humbled himself, and he was exalted. And what do we see in verse 21 that becomes available to those who follow after the pattern that Christ exemplified? He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And by no means are we exalted to the highest place of all, are given the name 
above every names. But as we've seen in this morning's text, for those that are in Christ, we have been given a new name. No longer are we enemies of the cross of Christ, but we can now be marked out as the brethren. No longer is destruction waiting for us all, but rather eternal life. And look again to Philippians 3 verse 21 and see why it is that we can be confident that Christ is able to accomplish all of these things. He will do so by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. All authority has been given to the Son. He has been given the name above all names. He is Lord. He will make good on all of his promises, but we must follow after the pattern that he has left behind. As we near the end of this portion of Paul's letter, let's take one last look at verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. It says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And way back in chapter 1, Paul tells the Philippians to conduct themselves, to live their citizen life, polytuomai, to stand firm, steko, and not fear destruction, apolia. And as he draws the curtain to a close on this act, look what it is that we see. He assures the Philippians in verse 17 that their end will not be destruction, apolia, for their citizenship is in heaven, polytuma, and that in this way, following after the patterns and examples laid out for them, that they are to stand firm in the Lord. Steko. As Paul comes to a close on his teaching here, he places in front of us two contrasting ways in which to walk and shows us that they lead to two vastly different outcomes. There are only two ways in which to walk. Which way are you headed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to you now. Thank you again, once again, for another day where we can just gather. We can open up your word and see what it says. Pray that we would come to it with open minds and open hearts to just hear what it is that you've spoken to us here this morning, Lord. Just pray that we'd each examine our own lives, uh, see how we've patterned them, look as to which way we're walking, Lord, and that we would just, you give us the wisdom and the insight to be able to do that honestly and accurately. Uh, for as we've seen this morning, the costs are dire, Lord. Uh, they lead to two polar opposite ends. And we just pray that each of us would surrender our lives to you, follow after your example, the examples laid out for us in scripture, and make it all the way to the end of our race where we'll meet you face to face, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.